Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Obstructive sleep apnea can occur at any age, and treating our youngest patients requires some special considerations. Here today to talk with us about these considerations for using CPAP in pediatric populations are Dr. Luella Amos and Dr. Robin Lloyd. Dr. Amos is a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep specialist at Children's Wisconsin and an associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And Dr. Lloyd is a pediatric sleep medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So, Robin, the AASM recently published a position statement on age and weight considerations for the use of continuous positive airway pressure therapy in pediatric populations. And I have to admit, this surprised me because I did not realize this was an issue. So tell me about this. How did this originate? Well, back in 2020, it became apparent to the board that a number of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine members were having difficulties getting the PAP supplied to our pediatric populations, the youngest children. And typically this was related to resistance from the durable medical equipment companies. So a survey was sent out back in the spring of 2020 to help enlist more data and try and get an idea of how big of an issue is this and what kind of struggles are people dealing with in this Mm. regard. So they were fortunate enough to receive 121 responses from... Oh, wow. Yes, predominantly pediatric providers. Um, About three quarters of the respondents did over 75% pediatric sleep medicine. And indeed, they found that people were having struggles with DME providing this service to our youngest children. Some of the issues that were stated were uh, related to this resistance were related to weight and lack of FDA approval of the device, as well as age and applying adult OSA guidelines. So that's kind of how this came about. It was a significant issue that was widespread. The uh, people who were participating in the survey were from all over the country. And so it wasn't just in a given region. And it was determined that, indeed, we needed to have more information put out about this and and a position statement was recommended. So, so. Okay, so what is the FDA approval then for for CPAP? Luella, do you know? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, it's kind of interesting when you look at the literature. um, There really is no, um, there is no age and weight criteria for PAP in general, but each commercially available machine is FDA approved based on um, usually weight criteria. There are a couple that have maybe some age requirements, but uh, based on weight, there are some limitations in terms of the um, the uh, the patients that can um, that are, I guess, on label use of these devices. So, meaning that that you have to be of a certain weight, like you can't be too little. Exactly. Um, majority are over thirty kilos. Um, there may be some machines out there that are 
18 or maybe just under 15 or 13 kilos. Um, I know, you know, here in the United States, we use pounds. So you can kind of think of like 66 pounds versus, you know, maybe about 40 pounds. And, um, and there are some toddlers or, or younger yeah. you know, um, elementary school children who would not qualify because of their weight. Oh, so that, I mean, that's a pretty high weight. I'm, I'm trying to think about my youngest and she must have been like eight before she was 66 pounds. Right. I have a right. teenager. I have a 14 year old and I don't think it's been that long since he was 66 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that, okay. So that makes more sense to me for why this even had to be, had to be a thing. So then what was the, the take home message and what was the official position, Robin, on, on using PAP and in, in the people that are sort of outside the FDA guidance? So after review of what available literature there was, of course, there weren't many prospective studies, but rather retrospective studies, case reports, um, heterogeneous kind of populations, we did determine that in the hands of a clinician who has expertise in evaluating and treating pediatric obstructive sleep apnea, that indeed utilizing PAP for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea in even the smallest of pediatric populations was safe and effective. So I'm if this so I'm I'm just flashing back now. I've seen lots of pictures of little um babies on CPAP. Exactly. So was that sort of outside of FDA guidance? 100% Really? So, uh, so this is where my brain is going. So you write a prescription for CPAP and then at what point does it sort of become challenging? Is it the DME? Is it insurance? So the first step is, is getting the machine from the DME. Yes. Mm. And often they require a kind of a, a letter or waiver of liability. Um, oh, so wow. parents have to sign this knowing that they're using kind of off-label use of, of CPAP. And um, so that kind of scares them, of course. Of course. And um, it's just, you know, another step that we have to go through. And then you have insurance behind that um, to to feel comfortable providing or paying for this, this machine. Now, for the little ones who may be under 13 kilos or under 30 kilos, um, certain DMEs are very, very strict and want only a ventilator. Oh, wow. Ventilators can go down to 5 kilos um, or 2.5 kilos, um, depending on the type. And so, so then you run into that issue and it's very expensive, not all, you know, not to mention burdensome because of their, the actual requirements to get a ventilator into the home. So you have um, insurance and saying, I'm not going to pay for that ventilator. So you have parents and, and these patients in limbo, you know, between the DME and insurance, not being able to get the treatment that they need um, and just kind of waiting on um, us to, to try to write more letters of medical necessity um, so it's, it's, it's a pretty, um, I don't know, there's a lot of red tape. Well, I mean, that just, it sounds really kind of onerous, both sort of on the clinician side, but I mean, imagine being the, the parent, right? Mm -hmm. And you've had presumably a sleep study and there's this diagnosis of OSA and then you're having a battle because you either have to be home on a ventilator, which sounds, I mean, probably a lot scarier, right, than a CPAP. <laughs> and then and then not knowing about paying that I mean I had see this is I live in the adult world so I had no idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
not only is it a financial burden, but also mm. just an access burden. And I think as a result, as you mentioned, it's it's stressful enough, I think, having a child who needs uh, special treatments, but also a lot of these kids have special needs at a baseline. And mm. so putting this financial stress as well as uh, limiting the access to the needed the needed uh, treatment can be very, very hard on the family. Wow. And so then for little tiny little kids then, so with the position statement, you haven't limited that it can't be used in any population. I think if I'm understanding this right, it's saying if you understand how to use it in children and you have experience treating children and sleep disordered breathing and CPAP, it is completely okay to use it. Or we feel strongly that in those hands, it would be okay to use. Is that right? Exactly. Yes, that, that's what the position statement states. I think it's really important, the, that caveat of making sure you're comfortable in your experience in treating pediatric OSA, just because there are a lot of nuances that we have to keep in mind. Um, number one, you know, you've got to find a, a mask that fits them. Mm-hmm. Um, the face may be very different, may be very small. Children with complex medical needs may have craniofacial abnormalities, so to keep that in mind. Um, we also have to keep in mind that the face is a constantly developing structure, so we have to monitor very closely for maxillary or you know mandibular retrusion, mm. um, depending on the type of mask you use. One other thing that you know we've touched, we touched, um, we touched base, we touched on in the in the paper was also the algorithms in the machines that are used to kind of monitor adherence and their therapeutic efficacy. Um, those may not be pediatric-based algorithms, so the age I may say 20, but oh, wow. it's really not, they really are actually getting, you know, efficacious um, therapy. Um, it's just that they're detecting no airflow when it's just less airflow. I remember, I have a friend that's a pediatric sleep, he's actually my go-to pediatric sleep person, yes. and um, and he just very casually mentioned this one day, and I was like, hang on, what do you mean? And and he, the way I understood it is that the machine just isn't sensitive enough to figure out that the kid is breathing and using and, and using the machine, and so then it throws off all the adherence, and then that sort of leads to, um, you know, DME's taking the machine back, and sort of that whole thing, and how he has to really ensure that that he is able to document that it's actually being utilized. That's correct. That can be a huge issue. So not just reporting a very high residual apnea hypopnea index, but also reporting that it's not being utilized. And it's it's interesting because families will say, oh, no, really, I, I put this on every night. I, I use it. Yeah. consistently, but, and, and clearly the patient's doing better and awakening more refreshed and, and all these things. So um, as with anything in pediatrics, it, 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 it depends on the caregiver's input. Right. And so when they're reporting one thing, but yet the machine's reporting something different, that can be a, a little stressful for everyone involved. And so one of the caveats that we have is that, um, most children are started in a uh, monitored setting, whether it be the hospital or an attended sleep study setting. And I think that's important so that we can indeed monitor to make sure that the, the treatment is safe and effective. 
and well tolerated. Mm, I think that's a really important, a really important point too, that you have to have that whole support, right? That whole structure mm-hmm. where they're initiated, they are observed, they're monitored, they're, everything's tweaked. Right. And, and Robin, you know, when you, you touch on a really good point, like when you see that you can get their age at a one yeah. or zero or, you know, 2.2, and then you see the data download saying 15, 20, you can kind of rely on your titration, right? You can say, no, we were able to do this on lower oh, prices, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you see that, you know, if it's a certain machine that can ramp up too, you're like, they didn't need that much. So <laughs> you, you can kind of sort of, you know, I think that titration is essential, especially in the little kids, because you can kind of feel confident that you were able to get them to a therapeutic range and, and treat them with, with this pressure, even though the machine says, no, you're not doing a good job. <laughs> So then I imagine you probably have to bring them back in at regular intervals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes we do. Absolutely. So is the adherence, is it the same as sort of the adult four-hour, 70% of nights Medicare rule? <laughs> well, this is kind of a, uh, I laugh about it because <laughs> when you think about children and how much they're sleeping. Right. And so if you take, uh, say, a you know, three or four year old child where you want them sleeping 10, 11, 12 hours a night, and um, then you say, oh, it's okay if you only use it four hours at a time, and that's acceptable compliance. So so I think there are two different issues. I think there's the insurance recommended compliance, and yes, unfortunately, it's ex- or fortunately, it's extrapolated <laughs> from the adult. <laughs> sometimes getting those four hours is pretty tough. Um, but in actual clinical practice, of course, we like to see the kids using it whenever they're sleeping. Yeah, that always, you know, thinking about that, I was like, well, four hours for a kid's sort of expected duration or recommended duration of sleep is, you know, less than half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it's just, it's funny, right? How we get stuck on these arbitrary, non-evidence-based numbers. Right. So, so I really liked in your position statement when you delineated the people, like you didn't just say you have to be a board certified sleep physician. So Using myself as an example, I am a board certified sleep physician. I have no idea how to manage CPAP in a kid. (laughs) So I love that you included APPs in your statement. You know, you didn't just specifically say this has to be a physician. I think it's really important to um, include our, I mean, we have a great nurse practitioner at our institution who um, can manage a lot of our patients with pretty you know, straightforward OSA on PAP therapy. And um, she has been very instrumental in investigating, you know, adherence issues as well as quality improvement issues. And, and you know, one thing that I think is really um, important to kind of keep in mind is, um, you know, sometimes we have to contact the manufacturer to understand why things are different in children. Oh. Um, I kind of go back to the, the downloads, sorry, I'm kind of perseverating on them, but they, sh- you know, they could show that they're not using them, kind of like Robin said. Yeah. They're just shutting off because they don't think they're not detecting them because of maybe their tidal volumes or airflow. I'm not quite sure. So we had to make sure that these machines are not shutting off. Like they're not like turning off and not providing pressure. Um, so they're just actually not recording. Oh my they're gosh. Not that trying. would be, that would be very alarming. 
wouldn't it? I mean, then you're like, yeah, this is a this is dangerous then to put on a, a child if it's shutting off, but it isn't. It's it's just not recording, but it's still providing the adequate pressure. But you have to kind of so our you know our nurse practitioner, our respiratory therapists, you know, like the people in our lab um, who have you know such great experience with children with OSA are able to kind of bring this back to us, you know, the other physicians in the in the practice um, to let us know that we are doing. Um, you know, the right thing by providing the PAP. We just have to kind of make sure we keep in mind the fact that um, these machines may not be able to detect them and, and, and stop recording their usage. Wow. So I just wanted to add that there was a discussion on the pediatric sleepless serve recently about how people are um, having more and more nurse practitioners and physician assistants joining their practices. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, the breadth and depth of, of experience and, and practice opportunities that the nurse practitioners and physician assistants uh, were providing to the pediatric practices. And so absolutely, I think we need to um, make sure that, that they're included in this, this uh, position statement. We felt pretty strongly about that. Oh, I love that. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about using PAP therapy in children. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Learn more about building a successful career in sleep research through the AASM Foundation's Young Investigators Research Forum. This training program provides opportunities for early career investigators to understand how to secure sleep research funding. Learn more and apply today at foundation.aasm.org slash Y-I-R-F. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Today's guests are Dr. Luella Amos and Dr. Robin Lloyd, and we're talking about utilizing CPAP therapy in children. So we were talking about that residual AHI, and you mentioned some of the inaccuracies. Is the threshold different? Like, do you shoot for an AHI less than five or an AHI less than two? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> or am I poking the bear? <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the criteria, so the, I guess the diagnosis of OSA in children, um, the, the AHI is lower than adults, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, um, at the literature out there, severity index is different. When, like an AHI of 1 to 5 is considered mild, 5 to 10 moderate, greater than 10 severe. But if you consider mild age, uh, mild OSA um, as being an AHI of one to five, but you cannot order CPAP for someone who doesn't have uh, an AHI greater than, or yeah, if their AHI is less than five, then you're kind of not treating the mild OSA, right? Oh. So it's kind of a again, it, it's we're using a lot of adult criteria to provide therapy um, and to keep the therapy in the home. Um, so it, it's it's always going to be a discussion um, just because children are not small adults. They're completely different people. Okay. So you've hit on something really important, though. I didn't realize that. Like, I thought that if a, if a child had an obstructive apnea index of one, one and a half, that that satisfied the criteria. And I guess in my brain, I then just assumed the next step was straightforward. That, oh, okay, that satisfies our criteria. They have a diagnosis. Ergo, now we start CPAP. Is that not true? So that's a great question. And again, this runs into one of the issues that was touched on in the survey in that some of the 
DMEs utilize adult criterion. And there's so much variability within DMEs, but we also see variability within an individual DME. And so depending on who you're speaking with that day, you you can really? run the gambit of, of difficulties. The other thing that I think is important is, is one of the main reasons we do in-lab sleep studies in kids is not just because of the technical challenges and the stress and burden that it puts on the family, but so much of the diagnosis of sleep apnea is the observation of sleep. So for example, I had a little boy with Down syndrome who had a quote, normal AHI, less than one, but the entire night he was sitting up with his nose pointed to the air, his neck extremely hyperextended, just trying to open up his airway. So clearly his breathing was not normal. And so, right. And so kids do an awesome job at trying to protect their airway, trying to, they, they wake up to try and correct. And so I think it's, it's a tough thing because when we try and get PAP approved for kids who have low HIs, when we know it's the right thing to do, a lot of times we really have to go to bat for them, but it truly is the right thing to do. So I think, Seema, in an ideal world, when you said, hey, you know, if you have an HI of over one, shouldn't we just be able to get PAP? That, that's, that's a loaded question. And I huh. think that's, that's a big struggle for us. Oh, see, I had no idea. And it's so funny, right? Because I know that answer from boards, <laughs> not from not from anything practical or always bugging my pediatric sleep, you know, colleagues, you know, and, and I remember somebody had told me that uh, somebody is a child until they are 17 and 300 and like 64 days old. <laughs> and so and that has always stayed in my brain. And I never recognized that um, there would be a disconnect between the diagnosis and then being able to to offer them effective treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think that this position statement will be enough to sway payers? Robin? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess, it's, and so let me, so I'm thinking, you know, we've all kind of suffered, you know, our patients have suffered in the last year and change. We have, you know, the first we had ventilator shortages and PAP shortages and the recall and now masks. And I, I guess I would think that insurance would want you in the cheapest and most effective modality of treatment. And so pulling ventilators away to treat something that could be treated with CPAP in my, in my mind just seems like not the right thing to do. It makes sense, doesn't it? Like that you would want to um, preserve the ventilators for what right. you're supposed to use them for. So. I do hope, um, I do hope it makes a difference. That was the goal, and that's what all of the providers on the survey said. You know, this would be amazing if you could put something out to help us out because everyone is working really hard to get therapy to their, their patients. And um, I, I can confidently say it won't hurt, but <laughs> um, <laughs> will it help? I, I mean, you Please just keep, you know, in your letters, if you have to write letters of medical necessity, you know, they can quote it. Um, just kind of, um, and, and the feedback would be great too. You know, hopefully we can maybe see if there's been a change over the next year or two in terms of getting cap therapy for the younger and smaller children. Mm-hmm. So does this affect then the decision-making process in, in terms of do you offer surgery versus PAP? 
So in general, we look at PAP for kids who have either residual sleep apnea after mm. surgical intervention or if surgery is not preferred. So people don't want to um, have their child undergo surgery or if for some reason the child is not a surgical candidate. Okay. So then this isn't necessarily because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about how in, in my mind, if now this option is sort of off the table, what are you left with? Right. We, we don't use oral appliances in children. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we always want to do the sort of kindest, gentlest, least invasive thing first. Right. Um, and I imagine, you know, just thinking back to my days of, of pulmonary medicine and home ventilators, there's a lot more to like a home ventilator than a PAP device. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's why we're we're hopeful that this will be helpful for people. And I think having the support of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine saying, hey, this is a safe and it is an effective treatment based on all the literature that we have available, this 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 can be used in a safe and effective way if managed appropriately in the right hands. And so, you know, let us do it. And so yeah. so that's our hope. So do you do you know why they didn't it was not approved for kids under 66 pounds was it just sort of what the trial was or I mean why you bring up a really another great question <laughs> um because we we as a group the task force learned a lot um ourselves you know we thought we, we do know how, you know how to treat patients with you know with with pap therapy but what are these machines? Like, how did they come about? How did they get authorized? And so right. we kind of started to learn about the FDA approval process. And so um, to not sound too nerdy. <laughs> Nerd away. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's, let's uh, learn. Really so uh, um, so PAP devices, commercially av- available PAP devices are considered class two medical devices. And they go through what we call a 510K process for approval through the FDA. And so through this process, they essentially just have to show that they have the same indications of use, the same characteristics, safety, and efficacy as a predicate device. So a predicate device means a, a device that's already approved for mm-hmm. use to treat illicit. And um, so they, you know, when you kind of look back at those predicate devices, a lot of um, the weight and age criteria were based on more bench studies rather than actually directly studying it on various ages or weights. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they they were determined to be safe and um, efficacious or effective. But then, you know, kind of looking beyond those age and weight criteria were not really on the radar or, or specifically done. And so we realize, you know, not only is there a paucity of literature about the use of PAP therapy in children, you know, in a randomized controlled setting, but um, that was not needed for FDA approval of these machines. And so you're kind of looking at machines that have sort of perpetuated the, these Asian white criteria um, mm-hmm. to get them kind of approved and used. Well, yeah, it's not like they've tested it in little kids and then said, oh, this is not a good thing. It's just, it's always just based on whatever the predicate device was, right? Correct. Ah. Yeah. And even when you look at the studies looking at the very small children, young children, um, they don't really actually mention the device either. You know, you know, we tried to look and see what kind of devices they were using and sometimes they just said CPAP. So, um, so we still don't know, you know, they, they tested it, but is it? You know, what machine was it? We don't, we don't know. 
Huh. There's a lot of research that's needed in this area for sure. Isn't it funny when you sort of start scratching the surface? Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you find out things, things come yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you learn about the whole process, like the FDA thing, right? And and even now we're learning, right, with the with the masks and the mask recall and the magnets on the mask and the warning and, you know, this whole process has to be in place. And, you know, this likely is because of the Phillips recall and they're, you know, digging in deeper and 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 that sort of thing. But um yeah, it just seems like um I mean for me, obviously, no idea <laughs> that this was ever an issue. So hats off to you guys for battling this for so long. Um and so to me it just seems like there's this great opportunity for somebody to come out and say, hey, this is something that we've tested in children and this is our FDA clearance and here's our new machine. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I think we also discovered certain um, parameters that would be nice to, to specify in those studies too because, um, you know, we there was a lot of BMI mentioned, you know, like okay. the body mass index but not necessarily the weight. So we kind of – couldn't figure out, you know, well, how much do these children weigh in some of these studies? So it would be nice to kind of really look, you know, hold huh. down on the on these questions that that if they are causing sort of hurdles in getting the machine for, for patients, that we actually address these specific parameters that you know, DMEs are looking for, insurance is looking for, um, and and really kind of, I guess, prove or disprove that they're they're working in these younger and smaller children. And I think beyond age and weight, the clinical history is so important too, because we know that certain populations are absolutely more prone to having sleep apnea and, mm-hmm. and have special craniofacial issues that that put them at higher risk. And so I think looking at the age, the weight, the clinical history, um, the type of device, the the interface, the treatment outcomes, I think is going to be very important. And, you know, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. And so if, if we are able to indeed help prevent deleterious consequences of untreated sleep apnea in, in children uh, with various clinical backgrounds, I think that's just such a crucial thing going forward. Well, and Robin, you raised such an important point that it's not, you know, it's, and we've said this forever, right? It's not all the AHI, but just that visual mm-hmm. of of that of that little kid trying to keep his airway open, open mm-hmm. and contorting his position in an effort to do that. And obviously, mm-hmm. that is something he learned over years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to have to be able to explain that in a way that somebody reading through the medical record would understand. Right. And to communicate then with the DME and the payer. Correct. And you worry about, I mean, certainly if someone has mouth breathing and their mouth is gaping open and and over many years, they can have changes in their dental arch. And what does that mean for the long-term risk and their craniofacial structures? So um, absolutely, these are all such important considerations. And I think definitely, as Luella mentioned, something we need to look at further in a prospective fashion. But we're certainly hopeful that this... um, positional statement, this position statement will help us going forward. Well, I hope somebody takes that on. <laughs> so <laughs> any, it was then I wonder if that would also address the low flow issue in the sense of, you know, the ability to detect events mm-hmm. with better accuracy. You know, I wonder if, if that would be able to be addressed at the same time that. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, we, 
we specifically looked at this in certain patients because we knew that number one, um, like certain patients who use them all night, but the, the adherence data said they weren't using it, um, they could not they could not remove the mask themselves. Like they have such complex medical needs that they can't remove it. And so um, parents are like, they woke up with it on their face and um, the machine says they weren't using it. So, so yeah. So then we looked into it and and then again, our our staff was able to contact the manufacturer or the representative from the manufacturer just to find out, are we going to hurt our children by putting these, you know, this, machine on them if it's saying that they're not using it. And they're like, no, it's, it is working. It's just not recording. Wow. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, um, there's a lot to be done and I don't think you can, I don't know. I don't think we can not look into it enough. You know, I think we, we, we yeah. have to compare the hard data, which is really like watching the child on the machine and then looking at what the, the data download shows that would be pretty useful information as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. So any final thoughts? I think it's very important to recognize everyone on the task force because um, they were amazing, very efficient, very hardworking. We're all so passionate about this. And we all were excited just to get this done. Um, not like completed, but, you know, to get this out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize all of them and I'll name them right now. So we have Funke Afolabi Brown. I just love her name. Um, so I have to say it a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic Galt, who I think is um, Dominic Galt is your, you know, your your great resource. Um, Robin is right here and, and talking with us. Moshe Prero, and of course Dr. Um, Carol Rosen. Um, we had amazing ASM staff working with us and getting us you know, getting us together with our meetings and keeping us in line. And we have Shireen Thomas, as well as Uzma Kazmi. So I think it's really important to recognize everyone on the task force that put this together. And I think we're making a big difference. What a good group. Robin, how about you? Any final thoughts? I agree with what Luella said. This was an amazing group, very enthusiastic, very passionate, and I hope that this work can be continued forward and and just help with um, improving outcomes in our, our youngest population with challenging obstructive sleep apnea issues. Well, thank you so much for explaining these issues around CPAP treatment for children and really affirming the safety of PAP therapy in children. Thanks so much, Seema. Thank you. To help your little ones get adjusted to using CPAP, the AASM has created a CPAP desensitization video for children. We will leave a link to this in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>